3: greetings everyone and welcome back to inside the musician's brain i'm your host chris pandolfi from the infamous string dusters and we're coming to the end of season four here this is episode 39 i have a great interview coming up in a bit ...with a band that I got to know much better through the process of having them as guests here on the podcast. And I was spinning their latest record earlier today, and I gotta say, I'm really digging the Milk Carton Kids. This is a super cool band, very very unique, and this music just has a lot of feeling. This music is evocative, and it's cool. I feel like this interview does a great job of explaining how that came to be in the context of their new record. And if that's not going inside the musician's brain, then I don't know what is. So lots more to that. Stick around for more discussion about the milk carton kids and a great interview to follow. Okay, Inside the Musician's Brain, we are brought to you by Deering Banjos. You've been hearing me sing Deering's praises all season and I mean every word. I am currently using Deering finger picks. They Acquired a company called Pro Pick that's been around forever. You've probably seen Pro Pick, but they've modded some of these designs. I'm using the Heritage picks right now on my banjo. And Deering makes just incredible instruments that span a, a wide range from super high-end stuff that sounds incredible on stage in the studio, and they also make by far the most quality, affordable banjo out there. If you're getting into it, if you want to learn, you should check out the Deering Good Time Banjo, and the Deering website, I should say, an amazing resource for aspiring banjo players. For all your banjo needs, check out Deering Banjos. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by Osiris Media. Osiris has been with me since the start. Speaking of Osiris, my friends over at No Simple Road, another great podcast that's part of Osiris Media, are doing a live taping. I'm going to be the guest right here in Denver, Wednesday August 30th, leading into the fish shows. Andy Frasco is also going to be there. It's going to be great. Check it out. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That is the infamous String Dusters record label. And got to tip my hat to our team over there. They are making moves. We've got new music coming out from Midnight North. That's phenomenal. As well as new music from Morsel that I produced. They've got a new record forthcoming. And I've got to say, if you dig instrumental futuristic bluegrass picking and you want to hear some of the best musicians on the planet my man andy hall my bandmate has a terrific new solo record out i was listening to it yesterday square neck soul literally the best players on the planet andy's amazing tunes check that out and stay tuned to americana vibes so i wonder how many of you have already gotten deep into the milk carton kids or even checked out the milk carton kids. There really are not a lot of bands like them out there. There really aren't a lot of just straight up duos out there who play just the two of them. No backing band. It's, it's a really stark, really stirring sound, really focused on the vocal harmonies. And I gotta say, it seems pretty unforgiving too, in a way, you know, everything that you're doing is very much front and center and it's cool it's a very unique sound I loved getting more into this checking these guys out learning more about them in the run-up to this interview and then we got together and yeah I gotta say this interview was a great one now I'll start out by mentioning that gotta be these have got to be some of the funniest guests I've ever had and You'll see that doesn't really take very long to get established. I was actually kind of warned about that, or I shouldn't say warned. I was made aware from multiple sources that these guys would be bringing humor to the table, and that they did. It was really fun. But in addition to being funny, they also are, for well, for starters, very introspective, which I think most artists are. But in addition to that, they're so, so articulate about what they experience how they understand it, how they get better at what they do, and the process of, in this case, of trying to create the best record possible, because much of this discussion is framed in the context of their latest record, which this record is beautiful, by the way. Um, Here, I'll play a little bit of the first track. This one's called All the Time in the World to Kill.
2: The world won't end the way you think Or when you think it will Time's a thief, why are we standing still? We've got all the time in the world to kill We've got all the time in the world to kill The girls don't smile so free and so wild, But they go on smiling still and right they are every night's for the stars they got all the time in the world to kill we've got all of the time in the world to kill Ooh.
3: So in a minute, you will hear Kenneth and Joey unpack the process of making this latest record. During which, basically, here's the the condensed version of it. During which, they write a bunch of music, they record a bunch of music, and then ultimately they decide that the album as a whole is not where it needs to be. So they go back and they take a whole year working more in the studio, writing more, and figuring out how to get it right. And they do, and they create this amazing record and they talk about navigating that whole process and it's so interesting and embedded in that discussion among the many nuggets of wisdom is their realization that their music can't just be good and correct it has to say something and even if it follows the constructs we've come to understand and employ in the act of creating even if it's if it's good and it follows those rules and it's in time and it's right and, and it's and it feels quality. It has to have above all else feeling and intention. And it sounds simple, but it's a really great reminder of a mantra that kind of cuts through it all, even after you've accrued all the chops in the world, all the technique, repertoire, and you know, maybe maybe a complete understanding of how music or your instrument works. None of that really matters unless you have something to say. And I got to say, this is something that I feel like I've learned a lot about from and been inspired by my bandmates on. All of them are really great at being committed to the music that they're playing. But I got to give an extra shout out to our fiddle player singer, Jeremy, Jeremy Garrett. He is always an amazing example of someone who's consistently expressive with his music and i really admire that and i feel like that's been something that for me has been yeah definitely challenging at points in my career where i've been too focused on technique too lost in thought and not committed enough to the statement that i'm making not living and dying by every note and even 20 plus years into my journey with music now it's funny maybe maybe a little ironic but i think about this more than Anything when I'm practicing, I just focus on entering and existing in that state where you're really feeling something when you're playing, you're really expressing something, you're really saying something. And that's, I think, what a great practice session can sometimes look like. It maybe feels more like a meditation Than practicing per se, but you're just logging hours in that zone that you are then going to try and call up on stage because it's not really magic getting into that state. It may seem like that when you're observing some incredible performance, some transcendent performance, and you're thinking, oh, this person has entered this zone and the magic of this moment. But what you're not seeing is all of the hard work that has gone into creating that moment and all of the practice around getting into that zone and everything that's included with that and it's actually much more about discipline and practice getting into that space and if you've ever heard of the talent myth that's that's basically what the talent myth says that innate talent or genetic advantages are not the things that make someone really good at something like music. Instead, it's actually much more predicated on very hard work. And that is some pretty inspiring news if you ask me for anyone who is willing to dedicate themselves to something in the deepest way. And I have to say, I think... You got to recognize in this equation that passion is a big factor here. When you're passionate about something, when you just fall in love with something, from that comes a desire to potentially work really hard, to get really good at that thing, to emulate that and express yourself in that way. And the passion creates the drive, the desire. And then the discipline and the follow through are what separate the greats from everyone else. And you should never count yourself out. You should never think that you can't be great at something because of your own perceptions about your innate level of talent or your lack of a level of talent. If you set your mind to something and you are really passionate about it, there is really nothing that can stop you. You are the only thing that can stop you. And I truly, truly believe that. And when it comes to overcoming obstacles and your your own doubts about yourself and making great art. It was so cool to hear how Joey and Kenneth of the Milk Carton Kids navigate this whole process through the creation of their latest record, really really great story very illuminating very insightful and seriously these are some of the most thoughtful articulate guests we've had here on itmb it was such a pleasure i learned a ton and i'm sure you will too so let's jump ahead to my interview with joey and kenneth from the milk carton kids here we go
2: And I can't fight back I can't even see what's hanging on my back Is it a targeting? Is it a beast of rage? Either way I'm never at my age I'm running wild, I'm running still Running child, running down my burden Running
3: on sweet smile Alright, we're live on Inside the Musician's Brain today and my guests are an amazing duo with an amazing new record Kenneth and Joey, the Milk Carton Kids, welcome to the podcast. What's
0: up? Thank you. We have two brains, though, which breaks your premise a little bit. And no, is... it doesn't.
1: You just have to move the apostrophe over one spot.
3: I knew it wouldn't take long to get into the comedic element of this interview. <laughs> just, just based on checking you guys out, your shows, and and everything on YouTube. Yeah, um, well, we yeah. got have a lot. We got a it lot. It comes of as no surprise. Humor. Thank you guys for joining me and uh, congrats on a really tremendous record. I will say I've I've listened to you guys guys some in the past, but as with a lot of these interviews, it's been a great excuse to go deep on your music and the new record is phenomenal and we're going to talk all about that um, in a second. But I understand that you guys just got back from a tour of Australia. How did it go?
1: It was fantastic, and we were worried about it, let me tell you. That's <laughs> what a- do you mean? <laughs> well, okay, I was worried about it. About what? What were you worried well, it's about? It's just a long way to... Uh, I was worried nobody would show up. Oh, I see. We hadn't been there in eight years. COVID had happened. Uh, it's a long way to go, you know, to... Uh, to, to if nobody shows up but like basically all the shows were sold out and it was exceeded all our expectations and it was fantastic the jet lag wasn't nearly as bad as i had remembered from eight years ago the food is better than it was before <laughs> even better yeah it was fantastic
0: anybody watching this is going to claim that joey is like terminally stoned look at his eyes right now <laughs>
1: the jet lag coming back from australia has been more severe the jet lag
0: right now <laughs> yeah right now yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, we're we're, we're primarily just going to have listeners. Eventually, we're going to have viewers. And if Joey is terminally stoned, then over the course of the next 40 minutes or so, they're going to get well acquainted with that. Oh, yeah. We'll probably pick up
1: some new fans.
3: I've got to ask. So what do you attribute that to, the fact that all the shows in Australia were sold out? Like, is, Is this something that you guys have been building, or was there something specific that made the new record catch on over there you know how why do you think that was no i think it's
0: a combination we have a good promoter down there this guy brian toronto that has run a company called love police he's who took us to australia 10 years ago the first time and whatever his network is there and it might also be that australia is like feels like a very large state rather than a very large country maybe just in it's grandess and population is that like (laughs) culture feels more attainable or more um like monolithic in its community so i think it's that we went there 10 and 8 years ago and had a promoter that put us together with an audience that would you know when our career was starting then and that eight years later he was able to tap back into it and We've also you know picked up however many fans we have.
1: I will say though it felt nice that there were at least two or three songs from our new record that when we started into them on stage they would reliably get like you know a little bit of applause at the start of them mm. at the intro indicating that maybe they were already familiar with the album even though it's only been a few weeks. So that was cool that was nice. That so, is
0: our big hope that like an album has, caught on and taken hold but in our little world i don't know what it's like in your world in our little world that's not exactly like you know somebody trying to seed the new and sync hit to fm radio stations around the world it's like what a reference (laughs) going back would you remember that when we were children watching mtv and like of course And, like, you could even then to the unsullied, like, uninducted, you could see the machine at work and you could see, like, how it happened. That's not what happens in the niche folk world, you know? Even our. Even like. Even
1: even with our new dance moves, you don't think it's going to. Oh, my
0: God. Even our 2013 and 2015 record that, like, we sort of watched. What we were doing catch a little bit of fire in our own community, and then you end up, you know, at the Grammys and you realize, like, oh, there's something a little bit bigger at play here that's resonating through. You know, I don't think people realize even when I vote for the Americana Roots Grammy categories later this year, the people deciding the winners of that, there's probably going to be, I don't know, 400 votes maximum 300 400 votes maximum that actually even decide those things so it's not like it's not like we're a household name and that you have to get there for those sorts of things to be achieved in our little niche part of the industry but it's like a real thing and you see it happen so like when our when our dying hope is that our new album like catches fire and finds its audience it's that you know it's a little bit of the like um big fish in a small pond aspiration we're just so what? To...
3: So what you're saying is that the in sync portion of your career still is ahead of you. That's right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, think <laughs> John, saying <laughs> <laughs> I think Kenneth is saying. I think Kenneth is
1: saying that that's right. not what we're after, but it is. Well, it's just it's not what we're after. It's what we're before. It's what's before us. Sorry. Well, I, I
3: should I no, should no, mention that's good. I should mention that. You guys are two-time Grammy nominees, correct?
0: Four time. Four Joey time. three time. Me <laughs> me four time. As
1: a band, we have actually three. me five time. Yeah, as a band, we have yeah. three nominations. Kenneth has another nomination uh, for engineering as, our as band. our band. Uh, yeah, in our band, uh, and then another okay. nomination for the Joy Williams record that he produced.
3: Okay. Very cool. But and we're and not,
1: like we don't really com- we're not competitive about it.
0: That's only if we're counting. Yeah, we're not. You know, we kind of
1: <laughs> share. We share everything, you know. So I feel like they're mine.
3: So let's talk about this new record. I only see the moon.
0: <laughs> yeah. um, we're so sorry. Also, it's not. We're not an easy interview, especially when Joey's drunk and stoned this, at eleven this, in the morning.
3: This is going. This is going great, guys. We're right. Where, <laughs> we're right. We're right where we need to be. We're going to talk oh, about we're going to talk about this new record now and mm-hmm. I got to say great record guys congrats like it's really <laughs> Thank you. you. It's really cool and as I said earlier you know a chance for me to get deep into the music and the production is great the sound is great the songs are great and I I read that in the making of this record that you guys kind of fell in love with music again I think Joey you were talking about this sort of rediscovered the kind of the purpose the motivation behind it all and I was curious to ask why do you think you got disconnected from that over the course of you know years and albums you guys have been together since 2011 you have a bunch of great albums under under your belt how do you think that all unfolded
0: yeah I think it's just time that's what time does to you Time is like the rest of life. It's uh it's an erosive um element. You know, and we often don't realize that. I think people can understand in their own mortality that time is what's getting you. But in everyday life, time doesn't like appear to erode things the way that water erodes the cliffs and the sand. What? You're making it pop. I'm making it pop? Mm-hmm, no, no.
1: Well you had one. I'm
0: trying to give a serious answer. Here. I know.
1: <laughs> I want it to sound good.
0: But that's what it... You know, like, I have the inclination as a person to, um like, find my favorite coffee and the perfect breakfast. And then I optimize the route there so that I don't get snarled in traffic. And then I know the perfect place to sit. And, like, I could curate that perfect thing for me. And I'd love to, like, do that over and over again. But then one day you show up and, like, the coffee shop's closed because the guy didn't run his business well or they changed something on the menu and you can't get your shit anymore and i think that's the same thing It's like especially the first what would you say joey two three years of our career we were like all instinct and all drive and all ambition and if we if i think about it it was like a very pure artistic experience we were just meeting each other exactly on the on the terms of engagement that started and yeah. if, And and then there was like obvious work to do, and it wasn't until like three years later where we're like at a moment. I think specifically when we started to make Monterey, our third record, where we really started to think about things in a way that took away from that effortlessness you know we got to Yeah,
1: I feel like you have options and you start feeling like you're responding to yourself or Yeah. some the fact that you have fans for the first time can maybe you know you start thinking about oh what should we do next and which was just never never entered into it before. Sure. And I know also for me there was besides the creative side on the like on the business side both of us had kind of struggled for so so long um that uh you know after within the first three four years of playing music and do uh you know having retired our solo careers and being the milk carton kids we kind of got to a place where we could play theaters and had an audience which is literally like was like the end of my lifetime vision for what, what a music career could possibly be that was like already the end of the road i never thought anywhere beyond that so yeah, we
0: talked about that once. Do you remember?
1: Uh, I kind of do. I think I feel like we might have talked about it even more than once. I definitely thought about it. We were a like, lot. if we just
0: get to 800 oh, yeah, yeah. tickets in 30 American cities, yeah, like this is how we yeah, afford it. Yeah, we really
1: got there like three years later, and so preschool, it was
0: like... <laughs> and this is how you pay for it. Like, we plotted it out to the death. We were like, just 800 tickets in 30 cities, and then you get close to there, and you're like, oh, wait, I buy Postmates too much. We need more money than that.
1: Oh, no, that's not, okay, I, but so there we diverge, because <laughs> when we got to that, I was like great, like, great, we did it, what's next, you know, it didn't occur to me that you would have to, like, keep going after that.
3: And so <laughs> did, you, did you have some vision of, of what was next, or was it, like, the kind of thing where you arrive in that place, and you think, oh, this is all I've ever wanted, and then, Maybe it's not fulfilling the way you thought, or or was there a clear path forward?
1: It was fulfilling for a while, and then I would for me, I would say there was not a clear path forward. And like for the first time, we had a lot of options, which also made it harder. Like Kenneth said, before in the beginning, it's very obvious what you have to do because it's literally whatever opportunity comes up is the only right. thing that you have the choice to do, and you just do that. And you and also we were, we're also younger and. Could get in a rental car and drive around the country seven times a year, which you know you start feeling the wear and tear of that physically, psychologically, emotionally, and then you're like, all right, are we really going to Pittsburgh four times this year? Or like, <laughs> can we uh, can we cool it a little bit? Have we earned that? But then on the creative front, you know, we always we thrived, I think, in the limitation of being a duo and a minimalist duo, where we committed to just using our two guitars and our two voices and after two and then three records committed to that um i think we we felt like we started to retread some old ground and and maybe it was less clear where we were going to find our artistic fulfillment within those confines and so that led to us making the next album with like a whole ensemble of you know up to 12 musicians at a time which was another seeking project um and I think part part of the joy of making that was, we saw the potential of it, and we saw we found I think I think we made a really beautiful record in that context. But then we went out and uh, started performing as a duo a little bit after that, and and kind of realized, uh, you know, by contrast, what had been special about the duo that maybe we had lost sight of just getting so used to it.
0: Interesting. We yeah, have a problem, it's... like that part that I was talking about of like trying to curate the perfect breakfast and the whole like controlling all of the details <clears throat> since day 1 Joey and I have always been like interested in that and kind of good at it it leads to some results but in the long term it feels like something that's actually gotten in the way mm-hmm. that, like we spend a lot of time thinking about the things that we think that we can control and really specifically on this last album the place i think we arrived at that's you know way way even more than music is that like so many of the things those things are out of your control even the ones that you think that you can and then there's other shit in life that you just can't control something shows up and everything's different um that really like for me and i know this i won't like accuse this I won't accuse Joey of this, but for me, a lot of that energy often took away from me arriving at like, um, a place of presentness in making music.
3: So you mean, you it mean the, like, ener- the energy of thinking that you can control every detail and what this art yeah, is. Just took like you all out that stuff, moment. Joey.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. You know, that talk that like those first two albums, we were a minimalist, minimalist folk duo just because like we had a, whole boatload of energy and songs and it was just the two of us and that's the only sound that we could make yeah it was new and yeah it was new and it like it didn't feel like a concession of any kind it was like whatever we were hitting our stride as songwriters as harmony singers as collaborators all of those things and then when that wears off a little bit and the tendency is to like constantly reframe itself to find a different access point it's like we did many years of that and i think not really knowing that that's a complete fool's errand that was just us distracting our minds trying to think that it was different but we didn't really change anything different like when i go listen to the our third album monterey where we were thinking about that in different terms and then our fourth album all the things where like joey mentioned there's that big band if i listen to it now the only things that shine through artistically are these things that would have happened even if in that moment we decided to make like an all trombone album like (laughs) it was just the only things that shine through our songwriting of that time and the like musical performances that's all it is and all it ever is it's not like anything more simple than that but that's a really hard thing to look at and like to look at in the mirror and see that i find it goes even way before Joey Ryan when i listen to something that i recorded 15 years ago it sounds so different to me now than when i was making it i feel like when you're specifically when you're making music i have anyway this tendency to really hang a lot of my aspirations and intentions on it in a way that makes it hard to even hear what's happening and then with years of um, distance and a different context and, and, you know, a little bit of a more level playing field. I feel like I finally can hear stuff for what it is. And, um, again, the making of this album, but I think also more generally in my life. And I don't know if Joey feels this way, but I'm intentionally trying to seek out the spaces where I can have a little clearer of a head about it
3: so what what do you mean by that Kenneth? do you in, in terms of like hanging all of this of your aspirations on you just kind of like we're putting too much pressure on yourself and not surrendering to this moment it's going to be what it's going to be um it's not the end of the world whatever this thing is
0: yeah literally this morning in my in my jet lag haze because i've been waking up at 4 a.m and so i just kind of and my wife's fast asleep, and so I leave the house and I cruise around and I wait for the coffee shop to open. <laughs> um, and the we had a really during COVID we had a really nice experience revisiting our record prologue from 2011 in making like a 10 year anniversary box set where we found mm-hmm. a bunch of demos and we curated this whole thing for anybody that's like, you know interested more in our band than just putting on the music and enjoying it for somebody that's like wants to do a deep dive we thought we'd give them a peek kind of behind the curtain and we had a really nice time that way and our subsequent albums i like i'm interested in doing that with and it requires having to kind of survey the material that exists and so this morning literally just out of curiosity i put on that band album that we made i have a folder from about three weeks before we recorded the album where joey and i just recorded the album as a duo just to like get the arrangement solid and feel And you're talking like about
3: prologue it. now
0: uh no now i'm talking about all the things that i did and oh, all the things that i didn't okay. do the one with the bigger in instrumentation yeah. yeah but just so that we felt confident like going in there and not wasting time and money we like we worked a lot on getting those songs up to snuff and i think it was in nashville right we recorded those
1: yeah in your house in nashville we said to ourselves if we're going to have 12 people in the studio with us these songs have to stand up on their own as a duo first so that when we get in there you know we feel good about our core
0: but so i listened to a bunch of them this morning and like specifically what i was doing on the guitar i remember when we made those that like they were nothing but glorified demos. And I remember that I was going for a lot of things on the guitar that I would never be comfortable with people hearing, that, like, if I would be too adventurous, it would feel like I would make mistakes. I would, like, if in my memory, it felt very rough from the times I listened to it. And this morning, I listened to it and was like, oh, that's just how Joey and I were playing music in October of 2017, and... There's actually a lot there and the things that I wouldn't have let my wife listen to then I listened to and I was like, Oh, that's kind of cute. I wouldn't like, I don't care if my heroes hear that. Like it's just a completely different contextual experience many years later because for me specifically, I don't know if how this worked for other musicians, but like, like I said, I pack a lot of my own aspiration and ambition into the moment of creating music that, uh, you know, if we're being analytical about it could be some kind of, you know, mental issue I have. Where but you I'm, feel uh, like,
3: so, so essentially you feel like you went back, listened to these demos and you heard like a freedom and a, in the moment.
0: Yes. That you appreciate yeah, like in a, a number way. of them. Yeah. And a number of them were a media. I was like, Oh, these three things have to go on the, like, like, cause we did that one on a label that we're no longer on. And, um, and so we'd necessarily have to do it with them but i definitely like earmarked 3 of them like oh that if they're down to do a you know an extended edition box set thing like these are 3 that the people fans of that album need to hear cuz they'll hear an entirely different thing i mean it also is it kind of cool for me in a self-involved sense cuz i heard it and i was like oh wow a lot of those things that ended up on the album that i thought were Born of the, um, of those sessions and the freedom of creation in those sessions. Like, there were actually just different musical modes that Joey and I really tapped into that we hadn't before and we have kind of since abandoned. And you can really hear them in those duo recordings that we then took into the studio that made that like were very impactful in directing in the way that those sessions went that are. Like, I don't know, a cool, f- cool period of our musical making that I just kind of hadn't really acknowledged to myself.
3: We'll get right back to my interview with the Milk Carton Kids after this very short break.
2: Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared
0: with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you
3: crank up to 11. That's cool. So as far as this new record, you guys went in for three weeks tracked a bunch of stuff and then decided that it wasn't there and that you had to kind of regroup and go back what was that process like i mean how do you how do you arrive at that decision and then where where does that decision leave you like where do you go from there how did all that feel well
1: uh first i guess this is a good time to emphasize or point out that um, we kind of established a, a little bit of a different working relationship for ourselves for this album in that Kenneth was the producer so yep. we had self-produced before and we had worked with other producers um, but uh, in the sort of past five, seven, eight years Kenneth has produce a lot of great records for other people, and also, in my estimation, become a like truly world-class uh, recording engineer in addition to producer. And so he asked if he could you know, take on the role of producer that he'd gotten a little more comfortable with um, as well as engineer. And you know, we knew we were just going to be the two of us in a room anyway. And I say all that because I think uh, one of the things that came from that decision was that Kenneth felt a little bit more like responsibility to make sure that the record was good like not every decision was up to committee Uh, you know was like by committee between the two of us and so uh when it when we got finished after the three weeks and we had like 12 songs basically recorded um uh, you know kenneth Called me up and said, hey, like, I just listened to all this stuff and like, I, I don't, I know we're done, but like, I don't think it's good. I don't think we have a record. I think we have like three songs that are good, and like, basically, he said we have three songs that are kind of coherent and leading us somewhere, and we should throw out everything else and start with those as like a seed of an idea and just write, keep writing from that place, um, and uh, you know, whatever flows from that will probably be better, at least make more sense and um I, how did that land that, like, with you Joey i was very relieved because i thought really? the exact okay. same thing i hadn't put in the time to analyze like what was wrong with it but i i knew that i i just didn't feel particularly passionate about what we had done and so when he said that i was it was like a huge weight off of my shoulders but i do think in if we hadn't had the relationship of kenneth being the producer i think we both just would have maybe said nothing about it and avoided the conversation and just turned in 12 songs that are fine but maybe aren't like as cohesive of an album and uh you know we, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have come to that huge turning point where we, I mean, we had to call everybody, you know, call the management and 30 Tigers, who was our label partner with this one and say like, I know we're about to turn in this record, but we don't have it. And it's probably gonna be a long time until we do. And it had already been COVID. It had already been years, you know, and we took another year making the record.
3: Wow, after. So that's, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I know it's something that we talk about, There's five of us in the String Dusters. And it's a curse and a blessing, right? This by committee thing, because it can yield a lot of results that really play to an eclectic group of strengths, but versus a thing where it's one person's vision, I think when it's more one person's vision, a band that's has a very clear, you know, front person or, mm-hmm. or something like that, it can be a more like decisive distilled vision I think that way you know it, it, it when it's just like yeah. one person's thing there's a confidence there versus by committee it, it can it can lead to some kind of watered down results because people sort of look and observe oh well if they're okay with it then I'm okay with it and I'm not going to be the one to stand up and put my foot down right and say,
1: you don't want to stir the pot
3: exactly but that's and that's cool that that makes a lot of sense so then do you guys feel like the experience of recording a bunch of stuff and then arriving at a place where you thought you could do better, that probably was the thing that ultimately fueled this next period of songwriting, I would assume, right? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the next songs yeah. that we showed up with, especially <laughs> Kenneth, uh, the next songs that he showed up with are, you know, some of the ones that are my favorite on the record that happened right after that. And then the last song on the record ended up showing up on the last day of recording when we had we'd worked another year. We got to nine songs that were all in order, sequenced like telling a, a story with an emotional arc and everything. And we needed like one more emotional, you know, punctuation mark on the end of the album. And uh, that song just sort of showed up in thirty minutes on one day when we were actually trying to write a different song. Um, as these songs often do, you know, you're trying to write, trying to work on one thing and this other one just fell out.
3: Yeah.
2: You're always forgetting everything you've done in your life. You say, I won't remember this morning. by I remember you smiled at me one time In the rising moonlight And I never saw anything white Or shining so bright Will you remember me When we were young When we had nothing when we had nowhere to be will you remember me climbing the fences running through the night
0: i never wanted
2: to leave will you remember
1: It felt like a, it really felt much more natural and inspired after that. And we, we were able to tap into that thing that we wanted to, uh, but after giving us ourselves all that extra time.
3: So like, how would you characterize the stuff that and this is kind of a tough question, but how would you characterize the stuff that you were hearing that you thought this isn't going to make the cut? Was it just not evolved enough from a songwriting perspective? Was it more a performance yeah. thing?
1: okay songwriting it, there there's like bad songs <laughs> 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 S- save, save that well, for an
3: ep bad songs <laughs> the milk carton I'm, gonna, kids. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna
1: disagree a little bit because i mean i agree i agreed and i agree enough but a, there's a there's a little bit of another blessing and a curse kind of a thing happening with us i think which is that like i uh i never felt confident as a singer just by myself Right, I've never felt like like I could. uh, I've never felt like a great singer, but I do feel like when we sing together, that we kind of like achieve the thing that like a really good singer achieves, which is you can almost kind of sing anything and make it sound good. And so I think that we can write some pretty anodyne, circumspect songs and just make them sound like pretty folk music. And you don't raise your hand and say hey this isn't actually doing anything acutely enough here like we're just we're just going through the motions and making it sound pretty you know i think we can almost get by on that which is a blessing and a curse and uh, we had to be honest with ourselves and say like we're not actually really saying anything here and we have a lot that we've been through we have a lot that we want to say and we want the lyrics to be sharper more focused um either tell a story or more clearly relate some sort of emotional point and uh one good litmus test for that actually was um for me in my mind the whole time it came from our now longtime sound engineer jason cup who said like the you know the goal what he wanted for the album was that he wanted us to have 10 new songs that we were going to be desperate to play on stage every night in front of Mm -hmm. audiences like 10 new songs that were going to replace our 10 favorite old songs you know Mm -hmm. and uh that that was a kind of a good litmus test for me as to whether or not the songs were like good enough, doing enough, like making enough of an impact. Like are these gonna knock ten songs from four previous albums off of a set list? You know? Sure. And so far we've so far we've gotten there. I mean, we're playing over half of the songs from the album on stage each night so far, which feels I good. I
0: think if we put an album out of those earlier songs, it would be the end of our career. <laughs> <laughs> Probably true. Probably true, but that. I don't.
1: But, but that's not the same as saying that they're bad songs. They're, and they're al- additionally,
0: they're also bad songs. <laughs> 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 One of the things about the duo, also, in addition to Joey's concept that you can kind of get away with anything, um, additionally, there are songs, good or bad, that. Necessarily fit our joint artistic voice, and then others that are completely inappropriate for it. Yeah, sure. And so there are also some songs that were in that mix that I, you know, if we were a different artist with different baggage and a different history and whatever, maybe it would be a song that you green light and suss out in the studio and figure it out. But there are a couple that we arrived at that even in the making of it, I. What was that one song? I found in the that first phase that we bailed on things, there were lots of songs where one of one or the other of us would be like, well, I'll sing a lead vocal and like we'll get a good performance of that and then figure out if it can take on a harmony or whatever. And then you do that and you listen to it. You go, well, that's a perfectly fine recording and a good thing, but it doesn't sound like our band and it doesn't sound like the thing that we are. Um and that was another big part of of like because you have to understand our entire history is like um, an exercise in not compromise that would put too negative a spin on it but like it's collision and it's these two things collide and then what remains you sort of travel forward with and evolve a little bit and that's that's like how our entire career happened it wasn't it wasn't very motivated. It wasn't calculated. It was a lot of collision. We had a lot of time to give. We had a lot of effort to give. Um, And because of the way that we worked and because of the resources and the abundance, so much of that was like our first two records uh, and then kind of our third record but it doesn't fit it's not as clear an example so just the first two records like we spent x amount of time writing arranging working them up arriving at the point of let's go record the album and then we just went into a studio for three days and played the song a bunch of times and then on friday we mixed it and that was the end of the album and like we were leaving that experience taking what we could get and like said the second one of those was nominated for a best folk album of 2013 and it's an album we're very proud of but it's not exactly like we were in there doing studio magic making important decisions we like trained for the race and then they you know fired the starter gun and we ran the race that was it and this process that we're talking about on this album is a very different thing where like a lot of these songs were written in the studio were hashed out in the studio like the you know the the recording light was on and the decision-making process is a lot different and that changes the way that you know that the 11 songs that we showed up with when we made the ash and clay all of that filtering process happened like I said in that sort of collision paradigm where if a song wasn't good enough like I don't know, it probably would have been me more likely telling Joey, I don't like your song, and then that one never showed up again. Probably, he would probably have a softer touch with me, but there was that's how we would A&R our records back then, is that like it was very holistic and sort of aimed towards this point of arrival, whereas um, in this situation, it was like, no, we have a schedule of work this week, and we could fill that with whatever we want, and we wasted a lot of days recording some kind of pointless music hunting down an idea but just because we told ourselves like i mean on that big band record just between us and the world uh we reached a point then where joey and i were a little incapable of that process anymore and we had to bring in joe henry as a mediator to be like here are 35 songs we have like we can't fight anymore horse trade about which are the 12 best like we need somebody else to help be like nope it's that one nope it's this one nope it's that one um but just because we had we've been doing it for so long like i don't we i think at that moment in 2017 well there were other circumstances but i don't know if we could have gone through that experience again together and come out on the other side of it as friends and so this one and this whole experience also in some ways was another attempt of just like I moved back to LA. We have a studio space. Like, how do we figure out how we work in a way where we don't, you know, we can work towards a common thing, but we can acknowledge each other's boundaries, space, we can acknowledge each other's strengths, tap into that. You know, it's just trying to figure out kind of the new thing. So,
3: how exactly did that writing process work? Once you guys came back and you're looking at this a different way, you need more songs now you're both just coming into the studio every day and just all right let's get down to work and are you coming up with stuff totally out of thin air do you have a backlog of ideas that you're sifting through like and then and then are you recording things and trying to understand oh this sounds good let's go down this road like what what did that process look like
0: i think the biggest thing and maybe the biggest evolution in our maturity is I can only think of maybe like two or three milk carton kids that we sat down uh, songs that we sat down with a blank page and they're good and they're and it's like they're cool. I'm glad we did that, but that usually is like a pretty bad process for us, in that it ends up arriving at these songs that, like we spoke about previously, don't have some kind of personal acuteness or point of view or whatever. And so I think we've kind of aged out of that where it's like if there's something that we're gonna seriously consider it's like one or the other of us has to write up something on the page Mm -hmm. that has some point of view and makes some sort of sense and still on this one like in years past like sometimes it's that and then poor Joey has to work through me changing literally every chord And being like, I don't think your phrasing's good there. We should try this phrasing and marry it to this chord. And, like, you know, he endures it and goes through it and adds his own, you know, sometimes it comes up against a brick wall or sometimes it's easily embraced and moves forward. But, like, it's that kind of stuff. There's, you know, a huge amount of latitude that we give each other to be figuring out that. It's more likely to happen, like, between him and me trying to work up a song rather than is it like laying scratch tracks down and trying different things um and then the biggest one there's like i think there's like four or five kind of duo even if you include the banjo songs like kind of duo performances on this record um as opposed to there's a few other that are just like built you know the the first track is more feels more like built there's more stuff happening there's Mm -hmm. more overdubs north country rides that way wheels and levers i only see the moon the last track will you remember me is me and joey and a bass player and i'm playing pump organ so it doesn't feel like the duo It's it's a real performance but it's not that but the other songs all feel like we each have an instrument and we're both singing and that's kind of it and we did a lot on this album where we would record it and we'd, and we'd like kind of early in the process and we'd do five or six takes and we'd get to the point where it's like, well, I think it's all in there. And then we'd comp it and we'd listen back and it probably was good enough to go on past records. And then because we have the time and space in this studio, all of those then kind of went through this process where like we just played them a few times over the course of a month. And then we were like, why don't we try to cut that tune again? And a month later, after from some different stuff, like the first five takes in a row that sound good come a lot sooner. And, you know, the arrangement feels a little more lived in and a little more mature. And we definitely wouldn't have done that on the first two records because, like said, you know, we had very little money back then and very finite time.
3: Well, I feel like you guys achieved your goal and... When I listen to the music and when I when I especially when I watch you guys perform just videos like the live record and the stuff that you put out around that there is a lot of presence in the music and I really really appreciate that and I feel like it came through on the new record and and the songs are a starting place I mean, they really draw you in but. The singing, the way you guys sing together, you know, Kenneth, your guitar playing, man, it's stellar. You know, and I I love mm, how I love how, in the moment, it is. You know, and I mean, I play in a bluegrass band, so there's a heavy emphasis put on playing and chops and all that. But sometimes it draws you away from, and 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 this is a theme on the podcast, and I hear you guys talking about it well as well. It draws you away from just the actual most important thing, which is being invested and being present and it sounds like somewhat of a circuitous journey but that you guys have sort of arrived back in that in that place in a way or, or at least are, are there with this process right now which is which is cool to hear
0: we're in a sweet spot and we're grateful for it well i love
3: i love the record and i had i gotta mention also kenneth you produced jordan tice's new record
0: oh yeah love jordan well we did motivational speakeasy when did it come out maybe two years ago i don't know he might have a newer record. oh that's uh, okay maybe not
3: yeah i, I can't remember but I, I love jordan i had to get that in there because he's, he's the best he's, yeah he's the best oh and, and
0: everybody should give that record a listen it's it's a true solo it's uh i'm very proud of this jordan started sniffing around um with the idea in mind and my big idea for him i think was very radical which was like like you're one of the best musicians i've ever heard your songwriting is really reaching a nice maturity like you should not you should both put not any put not any more pressure but also you should put this massive pressure on yourself to just make an album that's just you live in a studio so it's just him playing a guitar some of them are instrumental some of them he sings it's all recorded live there's no overdubs and i think we made it maybe over the course of like three days in nashville three separate days i don't think we ever did any back-to-back days it was just like and also i was like really tired and dizzy at that time in my life so i i wouldn't like work longer than three and a half hours (laughs) in each day so it was like, he'd come in and just play for three and a half hours, and we did that three times, and then uh, sometime during COVID, we mixed it, I think. Um, and I'm so proud of that album, yeah.
3: It was cool to hear, because j- just to hear his evolution, because, I mean, we back in the day, he was he was a bluegrass guy, you know, and I remember yeah. when he, he started showing up at jams and doing his finger style thing and singing and then writing and this whole new direction. And, and, and it, it's been, it's been great to hear him sort of come yeah, into his so cool. own. That he's way. just one of the best. He's, he's great. Sure. I got to ask, um, before we wrap up, what, what are your guys influences? What are you listening to? What's, you know, what are some things that have inspired you to do what you do, whether that's old stuff that got you into it or current stuff that you're listening to now?
0: Joey?
3: Uh, let's see. Um, well,
1: <laughs> you mean musical influences, right? I could, you don't could, want him to talk, talk about anything. Little League baseball. Could be right? your
3: favorite strain of weed yeah. for a guy who's <laughs> terminally stoned 24-7. Maybe that's what inspires you. It's
1: funny that this is the narrative.
0: Oh, that's great. <laughs>
1: Great. Should I put it on the record that I'm not, not stoned. stoned now nor basically ever? I don't want to seem like a square. I'll it's put a I'll a, put a disclaimer
3: in the intro that what yeah, you're, you're don't had, believe everything to you're st- about to hear. <laughs>
1: uh. I used to be stoned a lot and um then I you know how like some people now think he's that just they're just jet lagged. Some some people think they're like productive stoners. Like some people are and uh, i thought that i was for a long time <laughs> until i realized that i'm not <laughs> so now <laughs> now that i'm productive it's you know anyway what are my musical influences
0: you crosby stills nash and young
1: yeah yes
0: you're off that tip
1: no i'm i am definitely still on that tip i mean the the records that feel so it's a it's a hard, this has always been a hard question for us to answer. I don't. I know can if,
0: answer for Joey. I, well, hold on. You're trying to work something out here. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> I can not. just get you to an easy, heartfelt. I, I know place. the easy answers. I've
1: gave them a thousand. No, no not times. those ones. This
0: is even better. This is I can answer for you, and it'll be great. And and also you'll even catch a compliment in the way. Um, that's nice of you to call up my guitar playing. Some of the finest. Musical work on this album, in my opinion, is Joey's banjo playing, which is a new instrument for him. Um, oh, no way. In, yeah, insofar as he didn't play the banjo when we met, and he took a great liking to old-time banjo playing over the last couple years. That's true.
1: I learned from Sarah Gerose and Mark Richards on oh, a tour dude. bus when we were when, all together.
3: When You're Gone is one of my favorite tracks on the record. Yeah. It's unbelievable,
0: in the musicality of his... Banjo playing is is um, is uh, enviable. <laughs>
2: Up home. So the fall so I'm picking through a banjo too. I learned from you. I could forget and land in that Heart I can sweat. I asked you for a favor, you ain't let me down yet. Ain't let me down yet. The songs you love to sing.
0: And uh, and I know during that whole part of learning banjo, you listened to a lot of old time music and were very inspired. By that I think you always call it the Adam Hurt guy. Yeah, um, that's and true. And a couple right? other things.
1: Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Focus on the banjo. That's good. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> you don't have to ruin it. You just, <laughs> I just passed you the ball. You could take the ball. Yeah, no, that I would gracefully that is put it in the basket. In the last, in the last seven years, um, I've been just kind of taking a taking a real detour and deep dive into old time banjo music, thanks to Sarah. And uh, Mark, and then I have uh, you know been taking remote lessons w- with uh, Matt Brown, who maybe some of your listeners will know, and um, also some with Kaya Cater, who's one of my favorite yeah. our favorite musicians and songwriters. She'll be at our songwriting camp this uh, next week.
3: Speaking so, of uh, speaking y- of Jeroes, I-, I watched mm. I watched Sarah. She's been a guest here. She's a good friend and we've been playing with her forever I watched her on the sad songs comedy hour which for all Mm -hmm. of you listening out there is the milk carton kids great YouTube series that got fired up during the pandemic but it's great you guys come on and 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 you could tell and I watched it you know and as I was prepping for this interview you could tell like how freshly into the pandemic we are because you're explaining yeah. to her about the virtual backgrounds on zoom and it, yes. cl- it clicks back to kenneth and you're in the largo which is great oh, That's right. good. <laughs> yeah.
0: i forgot about that that was a good bit yeah wow. that,
1: yeah yeah
3: and a great that a great, great little series pr- that passes was
1: cool. yeah that was fun and the thing i've one of the things i really loved about old time banjo music is the way that it kind of still even in the modern era passes from person to person you know like everybody lo- loves to talk about who they learned a the song from or what version they learn off of what record yeah. You know, and there's these like there's these really clear like era defining demarcation points like i know sarah and a bunch of her pals like learned most of these songs for the first time from like tim o'brien records mm-hmm. um but but then like they, then they have since all gone back to Tommy Jarrell and wherever else they came from, even you know generations before that. And so I like learning them uh, from my peers and you know uh, modern guys like Adam Hurt, who obviously I cannot play like him, but um, just the, the attention to detail and the precision that he plays with makes it so hypnotic and kind of trancey, which is one of my one of the reasons I love the old time music and so incorporating a little bit of that song structure into my own writing has been a cool adventure lately
3: yeah truly one of the coolest things about the acoustic scene is that living oral tradition factor and you know Absolutely. we travel all around and play bluegrass and you go to jams and the way that they play the one fiddle tune in California has got like a few different chords than how they play it in the northeast oh, cool. and it's like really really neat to see the music evolve. What about you, Kenneth? Any any music that, that you want to hip us to that you're into these days that you're digging?
0: Oh yeah, I just produced a record for an artist called Vera Sola. The first uh first single just came out. The record's out in November, but the first single came out it's called Desire Path. It's some music like nobody's ever heard and then cool. funny enough we put we put it together. I co produced it. Um and so it sort of relied on this like stable of Nashville musicians and and a studio I worked a lot at there before moving back to California and it's kind of this weird culmination of all the work I did there because it's it's communicated and perceived through um like about the least Nashville artist you could ever think of they're not you know they're not Nashville songs or folk songs or and then they are but they're kind of from outer space Anyway, go check out Vera Sola Desire Path and look for her album at the end of the year.
3: Very cool. And make sure that you go check out the new Milk Carton Kids record, I Only See the Moon. It's tremendous. And you guys have a bunch of shows coming up. So check the website and get out there and see these guys. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Kenneth and Joey on Inside the Musician's Brain. Appreciate you guys. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having us.
3: That's going to do it for this episode of Inside the Musician's Brain. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Huge thank you to my guests, the Mill Carton Kids. It was so cool hanging out with Joey and Kenneth and learning all about their excellent new record. Make sure you check it out. Big thanks to my sponsor this season, Deering Banjos, your go-to for all your banjo needs. And of course, a big shout out to my partners in crime, Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. We're coming to the end of season four here, but before we wrap things up, I'm going to be dropping an awesome custom merch collab with my brothers over at John pandolfi designs little inside the musician's brain ceramic dish there won't be many of these stay tuned to my social media to find out more about when i'll have these on hand how to get them all that good stuff if you dig what you're hearing here i need you head over to apple podcasts and leave us a killing review you know what to do thank you in advance thank you for listening thank you to my guests we've got one more to go this season and it's going to be on the airwaves right here in two weeks when we go back inside the musician's brain Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's magazine founder, Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Numbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up
0: the road.
2: Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!